You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Today, we'll find ourselves in John again in John 14. John 14, we'll cover verses 1 through 6. In this, we'll find some of Jesus' most famous words. And yes, that's saying something. Today, we have one of the uh, seven famous I Am statements. Jesus has been the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd. And now, well, he's also the resurrection and the life. And now today, the way, the truth, and the life. He'll be the true vine uh, coming up soon. It's all done today's sermon in the setting still of the Last Supper, that Jesus had washed their feet. He had exposed his knowledge of Judas's betrayal, and he had sent Judas on his way. He then talked about his glorification, which was now at hand. And the events were set in motion for its immediate coming. And so he commanded them to love one another. In the course of that, we find out that he tells them that they will all abandon him. And when they protest about that, he even told Peter that he would deny him three times before the night was over. Uh, That had come about because they had all been saying Lord we'll go with you everywhere you go and Jesus had told them I'm going to a place that you cannot go right now back in 1336 where I go you cannot follow me now but you will follow me later and that's when the uh, protestations of uh, no but we will follow you we'll follow you everywhere no you won't And all of that came. And so then we come to chapter 14 now, verse 1. And we remember, of course, that John did not put these chapter divisions in. We haven't, uh, uh, we've been a week uh, off in the study because we took a division there, as, as logically that's where also they put the chapter dividers. But for the disciples, these are all just one after the moment, after another in the moment, There hasn't been a week between. There isn't a verse division between. There's not a number or a chapter division in between. But just straight from the things of them uh, being told they can't follow him and then saying, yeah, but we will follow you. And no, you won't follow me. After that exchange comes this in our reading today, chapter 14, verse 1 and following. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there may you be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We'll read one more verse, but we'll leave its consideration to next week. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus makes two statements there. You know the way and you know the Father, both of which, when he says it, they disagree with. We'll just pause and let you think about that for a moment until we get back to it in our course of study through the text. But if Jesus says you know a thing, do you know it? Was he right that they knew, or was they right? Were they right? Was they right? Were they right that they didn't know? Think about that for a moment. Well, we're going to take this in four parts. Jesus as the true way of life. We're going to see that there's, as he said, don't let your heart be troubled. There's going to be no trouble for believers. He says, I've got a place prepared for you, and you know the way. I resisted at this point to go with proper path, and then all those other kind of uh, P things to, to make the outline. And then we've got life's true way as a final topic. So, four topics, no trouble for believers, a place for you, you know the way, and life's true way. Again, we start chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. So many times in our consideration of this text, we start right there, right? We start fresh at the beginning of a chapter. Well, we are an hour deep into a conversation when chapter 14 begins. Why might their heart be troubled. Again, he had just told them he's going to be betrayed and glorified. And you know, every time that comes up, they don't like it. We like it now only because we know the effects. Uh, And we think about before we understood how all these things work together. Uh, When we were young, we probably marveled, why do they call this Good Friday? Right? The day that he died, why do we call that Good Friday? Well, it's good for us. Right? I think maybe we should have called it Glorification Friday. Maybe that would have been a little more to it. But every time this is brought up, they are troubled. Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. We say, yes, there's the gospel. According to the scripture, Christ was rejected and crucified and died and and was raised. We say, that's the gospel. And Peter said when he first heard it, God forbid it, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. We we get sort of the sanitized effect. I suppose there's no more sanitized effect than the cross and and the evidence of that than we wear it as uh, tastefully made gold jewelry. Uh, someone once said, imagine if in the future somebody made electric chair necklaces or shooting squad necklaces. Actually, people would probably wear that. But um, we have a sanitized view of the whole thing, but not just a sanitized view, but a glorified view because it is his glory. But it was, as the hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude. 
there he stood condemned for us. And they saw that he was going to be condemned if that happened, but they didn't understand it was for them and for us. And so it's a troubling thing to think about your friend is going to be rejected and he is going to be killed. Other times would prophesy that he'll be crucified. And so just imagine if one of your friends just kept telling you about, you know, the coming day when he's going to be executed by the state. That'd be troubling. Secondly, he's told them he's going where they cannot come now. We just mentioned from verse 36 of chapter 3. And they have based their life upon following him wherever he may go. Even at the cost of their life, into whatever danger, at whatever distance from home, in whatever way it is, where you go, we are going. You are the master, we are attached to you. And Jesus says, I'm fixing to go where you can't go. They were so attached to him in that, and they were so uh, appalled by the idea that they couldn't go. They all promised undying loyalty to go. And that would bring on the next thing we might be troubled about if we were there. Jesus saying, as he said in Matthew 26, 31, he said, you will all fall away from me this night. Quoted Zechariah to them. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That would be troubling. Our leader is going to be struck down and he says, we're going to fall away. That's when Peter says, no, no, if, they all, if the rest of those jokers fall away, I won't. Okay, I added the word joker. But even if all the rest of them fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And that's when he's told, no, no, you're going to deny me three times for the night's over, dude. All right, I would think all of that would be troubling. I could see troubles all around. When we start up in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me and believe in God also. That's the troubles to which he's saying, don't let that destroy you. These things that would cause fear, anxiety, perplexity, these things which uh, are gonna, they're going to have to suffer, including the falling away and the denials that they're going to have to live with the, the consequence of that. The cure is what? Believe. Don't be troubled, but believe. Notice it. Um, don't be troubled. That's a passive verb. And believe, that's an active verb. Right? We can just sit around and be troubled. And what do we have to do to be troubled? Those wags sometimes talk about, I'm a human being, not a human doing. Usually people say that when you want them to do something, they won't. No, man, I'm a human being, not a human doing. No, well, what you're being is useless. Or in this case, what these people are being is troubled. You can be troubled and get nothing done. You can be troubled and work yourself right out of belief. And so here, what is the cure for uncertainty? When you long for security, 
What, what is the thing that moors you and grounds you, anchors you in the waves of troubles? What is the thing that even saves you sometimes for yourself, from yourself if you are going to deny him, fall away from him as they would this night? It's faith in Jesus. That's what brings them back. There's a lot of things can be said about the difference between Peter and Judas, and sometimes studies are made of Judas who destroyed himself in this evening. Peter who so obviously makes a wreck of himself, but not to total destruction this evening. And one of the big differences, not the only one by far, but one of the big differences between Peter and Judas is Peter keeps on believing, and Peter comes back. We do think about the certain amount of moral courage that took in Peter to come back after his failure. Judas didn't come back after his failure. They both knew their failure. But why did Peter come back? Well, because he did the second part of this. He believed in God. He believed in Jesus. He kept his belief. And so, no, don't let your heart be troubled. I think they probably failed on that part of the instruction. I think they were troubled. I think we probably fail often in that part of the instruction as well. How often are we troubled when what we're told to do is like 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Again, the active, cast those problems on him. He cares. If there's any trouble about this, let him be troubled. Need a solution to be worked out? Well, let him work on it. And so here they are in fear and doubt and shame and uncertainty and failure. What's the assurance in all of that? The assurance is they keep believing in God and believing in Jesus. And how does it work out for those who believe in Jesus? How does it work out in the Gospels for those who either don't or who stop? That's the big difference, isn't it? It's the belief in Jesus. Do we continue in it or did we never start or do we stop? So here's a reason not to be troubled. Because for you, again, who have fear, doubt, shame, failure, and uncertainties coming, still through me, And your belief in me, verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Some translations say mansions. I think it wants us to get away from the idea that we get a little apartment up there, right? I was talking one time to one of the members here. Heaven is described as an urban environment, right? Everybody's close together. There's a great, it's a city, right? It's a city. Uh, It's a city full of parks. And water and trees and fountains, right? It's a, it's a lovely city. But we were talking about that, and they said, yeah, I don't know if I, you know, my picture of heaven is a bit more space, because um, a lot of us around here have the, you know, anti-urban bias. But imagine if we all had, you know, the, these palatial townhomes, right? And yes, there's, there's a, uh, maybe in the, our palatial townhomes, there's people on the floors below us, there's people on the floors above us, there's people in the buildings on either side, there's people uh, across the park-like street, across the street, there's people in buildings like that. But we like all our neighbors. 
There's no conflict. But imagine living in a city when you like everybody there. That every one of your neighbors is like family. Oh, they are family. You've all been adopted in the same one. So just imagine if we live in this beautiful urban environment, this beautiful city of God, where it's centered around the great temple of God, and everybody's got a place. You know, heaven is not a city with any dark alleys. Is it? There's no vice dens anywhere hiding out. You know, down, uh, don't go on that street. Every city you know, don't go down there. <laughs> Stay away from that. Okay, except during lunch, because that's where the best, best places to eat lunch are. But get out of there before it gets dark. There's no place like that in heaven. So, there's many dwelling places. Everybody's got a place. Everybody's got some rooms. And everybody there is redeemed. If it weren't so, I would have told you. So they had a conception of heaven like this, and that's one thing that Jesus did not uh, take them off of. You think about all the misconceptions along the way that he has corrected the disciples on. Their picture of heaven was not one that needed correction. He would have done so had it not been. So, that's where Jesus is going. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We know in the book of Hebrews, it talks about him going into the great tabernacle, the heavenly one, and offering the, his own blood. That's the preparation. He's not going there to, you know, clean, to get with the estate agents, to get with the real estate people, and make sure you know, that uh, all the renovations are done. Right, you think about moving into a new place, how much work is there to move into a new place? He's not doing that. That stuff's already done. No, he's preparing the place by being the sacrifice by which we have access. He's going and preparing it by offering his own blood there, presenting that to the Father, the sacrifice that redeems us all. So I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. So I'm going to go. I'm going to get it ready. Now we know there's a little bit in between, such as him sitting at the right hand of God till all enemies are made a footstool for his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages. But he is coming back when that's done. And so this is a promise of him to come back. This is what the angels repeated in Acts 1 as he was having his final visit after the resurrection with the apostles, he had spoken to them, Acts 1.9, and while he was saying this, he was lifted up. While they looked on, the cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky where he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus says it, the angels say it. He's coming back in the same way that he went. And when he comes back, he's coming back. You go to 1 Thessalonians 4. He's coming to uh, receive all of those who are asleep in Jesus. The dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then all of those who are alive will be gathered together with them in the air, and then it says, we will forever be with the Lord. And so Jesus is going to do an important step in that process. He is going to offer his innocent blood 
before the Holy Father to redeem us all. And if you trust in Jesus, that and all its benefits are yours. So he needs to leave them to go and make the place. And so he says to them, you know the way. So our third topic, you know the way where I am going. Very clearly stated. And then Thomas, as the apostles were so often want to do, Thomas disagrees with the Lord, this time disagreeing about what they know. He said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Well, just the first thing to ask about that. When Jesus says one thing and the, uh, somebody else contradicts him, who do we believe? Who's correct? Jesus says it's that. The other guy says, no, it's not. Who are you going to go with? Well, we, we always go with Jesus, right? He's the master. Yet they understand that, that he's the master. And yet they disagree with him. They say, Thomas says, speaking for them all, I'm sure, we don't know the way. And so did Thomas know the way or not? I think he did. Now, if you've ever taught any children or ever had any kind of student in any, any situation who gets perplexed and frustrated as the lesson has become a bit more complicated and the student says, I don't know how to do this. And sometimes what does the teacher say? Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Now, if the student is cooperative, they will then take the instruction, the guidance, and find out, in fact, they knew all the parts that got them the answer. And in fact, there is a very true sense in which they knew. Right? Now, there might be a few times where the teacher misappraised, and the student really didn't know. And they said, that's right, you're hopeless, you're out of my class forever. Oh, you can't do that? You wish, okay. No, then, then of course it's time for the reteach. It's time for the reteach until they do know. And we wonder, isn't that how the Lord might deal with us? Does he give us the answer in building block form as we've uh, grown in our maturity, grown in our understanding, and he asks us to put this together to get the answer to the more complicated question. And he tells us, you know. And we say, no, I don't know. And then he guides us a bit more, and we go, oh, I do know. Right? He teaches us and guides. But I just find it interesting. He says, you know, and they say, no, I don't. No, I don't. So the teacher, Jesus here, the good teacher, will draw out of them the information they do know applied to the latest problem. And so then the answer can be known. So they knew the answer. The answer was Jesus. Right? They already knew the answer. This is one of those things where uh, they knew the answer to nearly all the questions. Because all the most important questions that have come up, what is the answer? It's Jesus. And belief in Jesus. That is the answer. I don't even think he might, if you write that down on your crib sheet and take it with you, right? You can take your, you can take your little cheat sheet of an answer sheet, and as long as it says, Jesus is the answer, or faith in Jesus is the way. And whenever the question gets hard, what do you look at? You pull out your little note, and Jesus is the answer. Believe in Jesus, right? Verse 1, don't be troubled. 
Believe in God and believe in me also. That's the answer. So the way he's going, how do they get there? Believe in God and believe in Jesus. That is the verse one is verse one is the answer. And that answer ends up being applied to all sorts of things and broader and broader. And the trust in him deepens. And following what Jesus teaches, the way of Jesus, that becomes us the guide, the answer, the solution. And so then Jesus makes it plain. And he says in verse 6, it's me. Hey, look, it's me. Verse 6, Jesus said with a three-in-one answer, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's your answer. You want the way? It's me. It's the true way. It's the way of life. Now, in my old sermon archives, I have a number of embarrassing sermons that I hope that you'll never see again and that the archivist may or may not find. But I have these a couple of sermons where I have an outline where I have Roman numeral one, Jesus the way. Roman numeral two, Jesus the truth. Uh, Roman numeral three, Jesus the life. Where I have one, two, and three. Well, it turns out that's not how this is. That's not how this argument's made. That's not how the, the structure is. This way, truth, and life is a figure of speech. It's a three in one. If you want your fancy word for that, it's a hen uh, trisis. It's a hen trisis. Greek hen is one. Uh, through is the die, and then trisis, tri, three. It's three through one. So the, there's one point, there's one thing being made, one point being made, and it's given in a description of three. It's one concept, but a description of three. Now, we also have a much more common figure of speech that's very similar. It's called a hendytris, which is a two in one. And so uh, some of the two-in-ones we've already seen, Jesus says uh, that you'll worship me in spirit and truth. Is that one thing or two? I'm the resurrection and the life. Is that one thing or two? Well, that's one. Uh, When Jesus told them uh, in in Mark 11, he said, ask and pray. Well, do you ask and then you pray? No, ask, it means ask in prayer. It's two things that describe one Action. Uh, sometimes these help us understand some things that are difficult. Like in Isaiah 113, it says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Well, what it means is I can't endure when the solemn assembly is evil. Right? It's not two separate things. It's one thing. So it says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Some translations just say, I cannot endure evil assemblies. That's what it means. So we have these uh, two-for-ones. And we have these three-for-ones. We have three-for-ones commonly in English. If we're talking about somebody uh, who is into wine, women, and song, is that one thing or three? Or uh, if, if something is, is finished, we say game, set, match. Right? We've got three, meaning we're talking about one thing. Uh, in, in, Doug's, in Doug's line of work, you might have lock, stock, and barrel. Are we talking about the constituent parts or are we talking about one thing? We're talking about one thing. Here's a couple more. Uh, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. One thing. Uh, truth, justice, and the American way. It's one 
So here, here we have the way, the truth, and the life. It's not, again, it's not the only three in one in Scripture. In Matthew 13, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we have, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The kingdom, power, and glory. It's three in one. Uh, just one more. Jeremiah 4.2, it says, I will swear, or, and you will swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. So there's a three-in-one in Jeremiah. All right, so this is a three-in-one. The three-in-one of way, truth, and life. So what's that mean is, is a whole, as a one thing? Well, it means he's life's true way. For a little bit this week, that was my working title of the sermon, was life's true way. We might also say it is the way of true life. We could. I, I think this one's better, and this is what we end up with a working title for this week's sermon, is the true way of life. Jesus is the way. He's the true one. He's the way of life, life in it. There is no other way of life. There is no other way that will truly get you to heaven, to the place where there are many mansions that Jesus will take you. He is the one and only true way there. And so, he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is one concept. That's one thing. You know, you think about the early Christians. The first common description of them seems to be followers of the way. Acts 9 and 2. Uh, who was Paul persecuting? Those who were found who belonged to the way. Acts 9-2. Acts 19-9. Some became hardened and disobedient. They spoke evil of the way. And in Acts 19.23, there was no small disturbance concerning the way. So, the way. I think summarized from this verse. So, there is a way. The way. Last thing about this is that true Christianity, then, and Christ-following Christianity, it isn't interfaith. It isn't uh, syncretic meaning that you can amalgamate different religions. It's only one. Now, it amalgamates people and tribes and nations and tongues. It brings in people of all kinds of languages and traditions and cultures, and it brings them all together into one church, but it doesn't bring many religions into God. There's only one way in to God. Now, there are some places and ways that I like the blendings of different cultures and different traditions. Sometimes fusion cuisine can be really good, right? And so you don't have fish tacos, you know, without some kind of fusion cuisine, right? Or, or maybe a Korean barbecue pizza. You know, that, that, that might be really good. Or that, that might not, but depends on your taste. But fusion cuisine uh, can be quite trendy and quite tasty, but a lot of people would like and would prefer a, a fusion religion where we bring many and many ways to God. People sometimes talk about Christianity as one of the world's great religions. It's not one of the world's great religions. It's the world's true religion. And there are others then uh, that fall. Uh, one of the most famous uh, proponents of this kind of thing and 
He was very articulate and well-spoken and very famous. Gandhi, of course. So today we'll quote Gandhi, but not approvingly. Uh, the great Gandhi said, he said, the need of the moment is not one religion, but mutual respect and tolerance of the devotees of the different religions. We want to reach unity in diversity. The soul of religion is one, but is encased in multiple forms. Truth is not the exclusive property of a single set of scriptures. No, Mr. Gandhi, you're wrong. Uh, Now, yes, some mutual respect for the devotees of religion, but no, not a respect for the religion, especially not thinking it's equal to Christ, or it can be uh, comparable and swappable with the doctrines of Christ. Again, Gandhi said, the forms are many, but the informing spirit is one. The final goal of all religions is to realize this essential oneness. No, it's not. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, that is very compatible with every major corporation's HR handbook. It'll work well with the corporate diversity training seminar, telling you Christians to stop telling people about Jesus, but no, he's wrong. It's not. There is a uniqueness. There is a, uh, a uh, claim in Christianity and in Christ that is clear that there's one track, there's one path, there's one way, there's one person who's doing all the heavy lifting to get us to heaven, and we're either going to be in faith in him or not. The apostles applied the teaching they heard from Jesus this way, quoting the Psalms, the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, became the very chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is one road that leads to heaven. It is the road of belief, of faith, of trust in Jesus Christ. One road of grace that leads from our condemnation, that leads us to the promise of God. It is Christ the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that. Even though we sometimes act like we don't know that. Like Thomas didn't realize he knew that yet. He knew Jesus. He just didn't realize what all it meant. And sometimes I think Christians who know Jesus haven't realized what all is in the answer. And so they will say things that would tend to go against this. Some of them do it intentionally. Uh, that's, that's just error. That's compromise. Some of them do it unintentionally, not realizing all that they've said. But we know the answer. The answer is Christ. So don't be troubled. Don't be perplexed by the situation as we go back to the context of this was uttered in. Don't be concerned that you don't know. Don't be concerned that you're going to deny me tonight. No, you keep believing through that. And there'll be repentance, and there'll be restoration, there'll be reception. No, no. For all the troubles, just keep believing in God and in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, you will reach the goal, which is that place with God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. 
Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.